As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt. In today's episode, we're returning to the coronavirus pandemic. It's been almost six months since we last dedicated an episode to COVID, and since then, a lot has happened. Hundreds of millions of vaccine doses have been delivered around the world, but are they going to the right people at the right time? We now know the vaccines also increase by a tiny amount the risk you might experience a dangerous blood clot. How have we done at understanding that risk? and placing it in its proper context. We're also sadly much more familiar with long COVID. What's going on there? And how should we as a society look after those suffering these symptoms? And finally, does the way we count, or rather significantly undercount, deaths caused by coronavirus really matter? All that and much more over the next hour on Matters of Life and Death. Good afternoon, John. Uh, thanks for dialing in again. Um, we wanted to record another episode about coronavirus. It's been well, approaching six months since we last tackled this on matters of life and death. And there's been a number of interesting developments um, around the vaccines, around statistics and the disease itself. Um, and so this episode was really going to tackle some of those developments since we last spoke on this topic, looking in particular about how as Christians we can think about the ethics of these I think you wanted to start by discussing some new statistics that are coming through about how we count COVID deaths. Yeah, thanks. It's um, it's good to be, have this chance just to review some recent information about the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, there was a very helpful and interesting report in The Economist uh, just um, in May the 15th. And they were uh, taking tabulating data from really around the world, looking at excess mortality uh, and comparing that with the published figures on, on COVID. And of course, the, the, the point is that, is that nearly all um, com- countries, including the UK, they keep their statistics um, for COVID infections based on proven COVID infections. You have to have a, a proven a positive COVID test, and then you have to die. And in the UK, I think it's death within 28 days of, of a positive COVID test. So it's quite a precise definition. And if you don't meet those criteria, you don't get entered into the mortality statistics. But another way of looking at um, the impact of the pandemic is to look at all-cause mortality, to look at, at mortality for every any reason. And obviously that will capture 
people who die directly as a result of the COVID infection, but it also captures people who would die of other conditions, uh, but which were not picked up because of the pandemic. It's sort of indirect uh, result of of the infection. And um, to cut a long story short, the Economist had quite sophisticated models uh, using all the best available data and came up, not surprisingly, with the conclusion that the actual excess mortality across the world was very much greater than the published figures. Um, And so their overall estimate for the total excess deaths across the world was somewhere between 7 and 13 million excess deaths. Those were the 95% confidence intervals with, with a median around 10 million. And of course that compares with the figures which we often see quoted every day of of something of like three, three and a half million deaths. Mm. This is a, a really important point because it's it was discussed, I think, right at the beginning of the pandemic when we were trying to figure out how to, to measure what impact the pandemic was having because obviously a moment's thought tells us that it's not only that people die from catching COVID itself, but there's a whole, sadly, a whole other bunch of people who are dying not without ever testing positive, but because of the pressure that the pandemic is having on the NHS, on society in general, and other difficult to difficult to understand mechanisms. And you see this really clearly when you look at in the UK, for example, you look at the 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 average number of people who die each month uh, over the last ten years. You know, you look at maybe March, April last year, and then you look at how many people actually died in the UK in twenty twenty in those months, and it's staggering that that the way that line leaps up. And it's and only I think about half of those deaths are actually can be attributed to to, to recorded COVID fatalities. Yeah, but of course that's looking at the UK, and the UK has some of the best um, national statistics in the world in terms of the accuracy and the of collection and the way it's cross tabulated to make sure that every death is picked up and 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 tabulated and so on. Unfortunately, in many countries across the world, particularly in in poorer countries the ability to uh, to record deaths and the cause of death is very much less. I was just talking a week ago to a friend of mine who's a, a doctor working at the moment in India, and he said that it, w- it was well known that whereas if you died in one of the major cities like Mumbai or Delhi, the chances were that this death would be recorded and tabulated. Um, if If you died in the villages often deaths occurred uh, which were not registered and that bodies would be buried rapidly by relatives uh, or sometimes left floating in the in the rivers and and uh, they're aware of the fact that covid is sweeping through the villages in india but the actual number of deaths is completely unknown um, so even the estimates given by uh, bodies like the economist or the world health organization still have huge margins of error about them. It's simply not possible to know uh, what, what's happening in, in, in many places in, uh, in Asia and also in Africa. What does this, why does this matter, do you think, John? Why, does it, why should we care about how we're counting deaths uh, and the fact that the deaths might be as many as three or four times higher than the kind of headline figures we're seeing day to day? Why does, what does that change? 
Well, I think it does. It really does matter because the truth is that we know that often inaccurate data is worse than no data at all. Um, and I, I feel quite concerned about the way that people, many people, seem to be completely obsessed by the published figures. You know, understandably, you know the way that the you know these are reported every day, the number of deaths, the number of the number of infections has gone up by a hundred, has gone down by five hundred, and so on. And yet, we know that those figures are inevitably uh, very unreliable. That there are many, many infections that are not being trapped by those figures. Um, and that's true in the UK, but it's even more true in many countries across the world. And I, I feel concerned, therefore, that unreliable figures, figures which are known to massively underestimate the truth can actually give quite a false sense of, of reassurance um, to to people about the true gravity of, of, of this lethal pandemic. And it is interesting, you know, I, looked, I went and looked back and, and just compared with the Spanish influenza epidemic in so-called Spanish flu in 1918-19, and it was estimated that um, the total mortality related to the Spanish flu was, was estimated about 50 million across the world. Um, now, of course, world population would be substantially smaller than it is today, but if you compare that with the economist's figure of, say, 10 million, or somewhere between 7 and 13 million, and of course we are absolutely in the middle of the pandemic at the moment, uh, it, it's spreading across India and many other countries, it makes you realise that we are probably in the same kind of ballpark in terms of um, a devastating uh, pandemic. And as was often said, the Spanish flu accounted for far more deaths than the world wars that had happened, uh, the world war that had happened for over four years before. The wars are really interesting comparison because I was just thinking as you were saying there that... <sighs> The 50 million figure, which, I, you know, is the is the one that most historians kind of use in shorthand when you're talking about it, is, of course, a pretty broad guesstimate because, even, you know, 100 years ago, we had even worse ability to count, to count uh, deaths. And this was a global pandemic affecting every continent, including countries that just did not have the, the level of organisation. And so we really have no idea how many people the Spanish flu killed truthfully. And it's quite sobering to realise that we really have no idea how many the, Span uh, the COVID pandemic will kill in the end. It will be guesstimates and estimates. Whereas in war, we, since the First World War, in fact, basically brought in the idea of memorialisation, the idea that actually every body should be buried, every name should be recorded, um, you know, and introduce the phenomenon of Remembrance Day. I just think it's interesting that there won't be anything similar like that. There won't be any Commonwealth War Graves Commission for the co people who died of COVID. Despite it having a death toll comparable to war, their names will be lost to history. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? And it's particularly um, poignant because we know in the UK that uh, there have been very significant excess mortality amongst health professionals and other emergency workers who've had much higher levels of both mortality and infection rates compared with the general population. And that is certainly true across the world. Um, and yet, you know, these were people who gave their lives in the course of duty in order to save mm. their country. You know, you, you could argue that their deaths were every bit as altruistic, self-sacrificial as soldiers who went to war. And yet I think it's a very 
poignant um, comparison, isn't it, that we we celebrate and remember and Remembrance Day all those who gave their lives fighting for the country. Will will we remember and celebrate the lives of those who were lost fighting the coronavirus pandemic? I, ho- I certainly hope so. I think I have certainly seen some initial discussions in the news about what would be an appropriate way to to honour and remember the pandemic. Um, I think there probably, hopefully there will be some kind of national memorial monument, but ultimately, as you say, those names will be will be unknown in well some of them will be unknown sadly and even more so in countries um that have that have had worse pandemics than us or haven't got the the infrastructure to kind of count like we do yeah and you know i think thinking about india as well it it there is a real um concern about about how this is going to end you know because if you think about the indian villages um, you know, of which there are vast, the population in the Indian villages, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, they don't have access to decent health care. They don't have access to vaccines and, and, and they won't have for months, if not years to come, it seems, sadly. And uh, the idea of any kind of serious lockdown and quarantining, again, is unrealistic in in the villages because they depend so many people depend for their living wage on being able to work every day so you know given those facts and this horrible disease you know with the indian variant highly infectious highly lethal circulating through the indian villages it's it's really quite hard to see how this is going to come to an end anytime soon um even though the actual measurement of, of what's going on uh, is, is not available. Um, and sadly, I think it seems that for political reasons, uh, at least some Indian politicians are, are deliberately trying to minimise the, the reality of what's going on because, it's, it, it, um, because of their reputation is, is being adversely affected. Hmm. And just lastly, then I think that it, it underlines a point that we've made in previous podcasts. But there is a there's a real genuine risk that ultimately, in the long term, COVID becomes a disease which is, you know, shockingly unequal in in its application. And rich Western nations like ours here in the UK will be vaccinated and mostly protected, but there's every chance that it continues to wreak havoc and just is slow burn carries on in in rural parts of the developing world where they don't have access to to those kind of um treatments and vaccines for for many years to come which would be a really devastating outcome if it becomes effectively a poor world disease not a not a global disease i'm afraid so and and so i think you know here from a christian point of view we have to say one that we have a a real commitment to truth the most important thing is to know the reality of what's happening across the world and not to try to sanitise that. But secondly, uh, we have a, a Christian duty to care for those who are most vulnerable um, and, and to ensure that we do what we can. And so I, I think there is a real responsibility on Christian people to to recognise that. There is already a, t- a tendency we feel here in the UK the sort of people breathing a sigh of relief and saying, thank goodness, things are going back to normal. Let's let's go back to how we lived our lives before. And meanwhile, this terrible 
thing is, is still spreading around the world. Uh, we're going to come back, aren't we, to talk about vaccines? Yeah, a bit um, later on. We'll, we'll do with that a bit later on. I wanted to mention next a bit about long COVID because that's something that um, that I'm aware of. Has, is it something that you, that's reached your awareness really about people with long COVID? Yeah, definitely. I think towards the second half of last year, I started reading articles, uh, people telling stories about their own experiences as, as people kind of gradually found each other. There was a lot of social media support groups and because I think a lot of people found it hard to get diagnose, a diagnosis at first because it was obviously something that the medical professionals had never seen before. So yeah, it's a kind of, a, again, a bit of a slow burn story really, kind of but it seems to be gradually accelerating, realising actually this is, it's not just a question of you don't just get it and either die or recover fully. There is a third group who get it and never fully recover, which is quite sobering thought. Yeah. And uh, the Office for National Statistics in the UK produced a very long and and detailed analysis um, just recently. They looked at a four-week period which ended on the 6th of March 2021. They interviewed uh, a large number of of people across the country, a representative sample, and and then came to the conclusion their 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 headline estimate was that 1.1 million people in private households in the UK were reporting experiencing long covid symptoms that symptoms were going on more than 4 weeks and uh they estimated that in fact over 400,000 people in the UK had long covid symptoms which were going on over 39 weeks after the initial infection and 196,000 people said their activities were restricted, quotes a lot, uh, mm. which presumably means it was something really affecting their ability to live their everyday lives. And this really changes, um, along with actually, in a not dissimilar way to how we think about excess death versus, you know, the actual counted deaths of COVID, when we realise that that infect, coronavirus infection can lead to symptoms lasting you know three months six months now and now people who are approaching the 12 month stage it really changes how you think about the risks of catching it particularly for someone like me who would otherwise we the message we've been told is if you're in your 20s and 30s you're basically you'll feel rotten for a couple of days and then bounce back but that's actually not the case is it no well that's one of the very striking things because i had anticipated that uh your chances of having long COVID symptoms would definitely be related to your age because that's certainly what the mortality figures have shown so clearly. Uh, and the fascinating thing is that, that there isn't an age effect at all. They, they In the ONS report, they uh, looked at all age groups and they showed that basically the, the rate of long COVID was, was similar in all the age groups, literally from children... Um, all the way through to elderly people and um, that the age group 25 to 34 uh, seemed if anything to have the highest percentage of um, participants reporting symptoms at 12 weeks uh, with uh, an an estimated 18% Hmm. of their study participants 
which is a striking number. I mean, it's almost one in five people between the ages of 25 and 34 who have caught COVID in this country are still having symptoms 12 weeks later, which is it's really a very sobering, sobering thought. I'm not sure it's really filtered into the public discussion of it yet. No, it hasn't. And, and you know, this is something where, again, you know, we're still learning about coronavirus, this particular COVID a virus but it it is clearly very different from influenza with which it's so often compared because you know the the comparable figures for influenza would be much much smaller of course it it is known that there are some people can be seriously affected long term by influenza there are rare complications encephalitis or myocarditis where the heart becomes inflamed but these are rare and um in contrast, you know, that COVID does seem to have a, a, a particularly long-lasting effect. And this is probably primarily because its ability to invade the central nervous system. I think one of the things that people, most people don't realise is that, I mean, most people know that one of the classic symptoms of COVID is that you lose your sense of smell mm. and taste. But that is direct evidence of invasion of the central nervous system. Um, and that it has uh, probably gone directly through because uh, the nerves uh, for taste and smell are actually in your nose um, and therefore if you get an infection, an upper respiratory infection it probably invades directly down the nerves and into your central nervous system and uh, so a lot of the symptoms, the long Covid symptoms are related to central nervous system involvement and that really... um opens you up basically to a whole astonishing range when you read some of the accounts of people with long COVID, the the range of things that they are experiencing, everything from, you know, crippling headaches to kind of joint aches and pains to uh, brain fog and inability to speak and concentrate, chronic fatigue, the list goes on and on and on, alongside the expected things like, you know, breathlessness and, and diminished kind of lung capacity and function. That's right. And uh, just ye- uh, yesterday I listened uh, to, on the BBC on a um, File on Four documentary um, and they had a number of, ser- uh, uh, of people talking about their long COVID uh, experiences, particularly health professionals who were infected at work. And, um, and, and s- s- some of this was very painful listening. I mean, I, one was a story of a consultant... Uh, intensivist I think who um, developed the infection uh, now that's right he worked in A&E and, that, and he felt that he was infected because they didn't have high level uh, PPE it was the intensive care staff who had the high level PPE and the people working in A&E especially in the early phases the recommendation is that they just use standard surgical masks and gloves and he was infected and he was very severely affected even a year later and he had incontinence, he was unable to work, he'd lost his job and the compensation, the NHS uh, sick pay had basically run out and um, and the programme, the documentary was asking the question whether or not people who sustained long Covid as a result of exposure at work should be eligible for uh, long-term compensation from the state um, which is equivalent to the kind of compensation that happens if you get um, severely 
d damaged or infected at, at work, um, for instance, with um, asbestos or some other work-related illness. Mm. And on one level, it seems like quite an easy decision, if you, especially when you think about f our frontline healthcare workers are effectively the soldiers in the war against COVID. And, you know, if we sent a soldier out to war and they, they, they developed a chronic uh, health condition, we wouldn't hopefully chuck them on the scrap heap after a year and leave them to fend for themselves. We would recognise that, you know, they are suffering because we asked them to, to go and do a dangerous thing on behalf of everyone else and therefore we have a duty of care. But I guess this is such a novel experience that there isn't really the same expectations or protocols drawn up. What do you do about people who are who um, sent into danger by just working in an NHS hospital? That's right, and not just NHS hospital. What about the supermarket worker who kept going through the lockdown, mm. develops long COVID as a result, or the um, the bus driver? Um, and the the thing is, of course, is that providing conversation which could be lifelong and very substantial, uh, if we're going to end up having to pay long-term consumption uh, compensation to hundreds of thousands of people uh, this this in itself becomes a very major uh, additional uh, expense and, and yet you could argue that that, that would be just mm. what's your view do you think it's even if it requires everyone you know to put another penny on income tax is it something that we just have to do we have to fulfill our obligations to the, the frontline workers who kept the country going last year I think we do. I mean, I'd certainly, I suppose as a medic, it, you know, it's pretty close to home. But if I had caught long COVID because I had gone in to work uh, at an emergency and being called back, I, I wasn't in fact. But if I had, and as, as a result, discovered that I had a long-term disability and it was now po not possible for me to work, I, I think I would feel that the community did. Um, it would be just for the community to support me uh, because of the fact that I'd given my health to try and protect protect the community from a horrible disease. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree. I think that seems uh, seems a fair quid pro quo. Not that you want to do it in those kind of blunt terms, but ultimately, you know, we we have a duty of care responsibility to those people who go and do dangerous things on our behalf to keep everyone else safe. Um, and, and just like. For soldiers, it's a very important part of maintaining morale for soldiers that they feel that if something happens to them in the line of duty, they're going to be properly cared for and supported and their dependents are going to be cared for and supported. I think there is an analogy for health workers and other emergency workers in, in the midst of a lethal pandemic. Absolutely. And we don't want morale in the NHS to drop, drop any further than it already has after a year of horrendous overwork and stress and personal risk and danger it does raise the whole economic issue doesn't it, it that uh, not only all of this is our extra burdens falling on public spending um, you know re recapturing the economy uh, leveling up as as Boris Johnson calls it with infrastructure spending and and now potentially huge compensation payments for those affected these are um, all going to have implications for for our economy and uh, I suspect that there's no alternative but a sort of more redistribution in other words richer people are going to have to pay more in taxes uh, in order to support the massively increased public spending. Yeah and coming on the back of you know a year of the furlough scheme and 
significant state support for industries and economy and, and sectors of the economy that needed wages paid and all that stuff. There's, the bill is going to eventually become due at some point and yeah, I think there's no alternative but to uh, to have to increase taxation or at least, you know, change how we um, redistribute wealth from from businesses and individuals. Shall we move on to uh, to the next issue we wanted to talk about, which was um, the question of blood clots and and the risks of the vaccines? Um, of course, we did a, we did a series of episodes. Uh, back in the end, tail end of last year when the vaccines were just becoming available for the first time and a lot of people were concerned about the fact they'd been rushed through too fast um, and and we were explaining how actually they have had the full kind of clinical trial process and regulatory scrutiny that all other medicines have um, and what we now know of course is that on the, whole, on the whole the vaccines are very safe that they are work, they're effective, they keep people from safe from catching COVID. And if they do catch it, they're much less likely to, to go to hospital. But we do also now know that there is a very, very small increase of uh, some kind of rare blood clots. Yeah, and it's um, it's not at all surprising because there's no such thing as a safe medicine. Well, in fact, there are some safe medicines and they are the homeopathic medicines. And <laughs> as a cynical medic... I, that's quite a strong reason for me to think the homeopathic medicines don't do anything because what we know biologically is that all medications that actually do things that change physiology or biology in some way uh, also have side effects almost inevitably and risks. And uh, as you say, it turns out that all the current coronavirus vaccines that we're using, at least in the Western world, are um, amazingly safe um, and that if if there were serious and, and, and frequent complications, I think it's almost clear, absolutely clear, they would have become apparent by now after tens of millions of doses have been given in the UK alone. But um, there is pretty clear evidence now that um, the AstraZeneca vaccine is associated with blood clot of about five per million doses. Interestingly, in a recent paper I looked at, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have a very similar rate of about four per million doses. And statistically, there's really no difference between those two figures. So people who say, oh, I don't want to get the AstraZeneca, I'm going to hang out for the Pfizer vaccine, I'm <laughs> afraid really doesn't have any kind of scientific um, basis behind it. But the other fascinating thing is that the risk of blood a serious blood clotting, particularly in the brain, if you get the infection itself, is much higher. It's about 39 per million almost 10 times higher than the risk from the vaccine. Hmm. And so this really underlines the message that we've been hearing a lot from government, but it's also very much grounded in science, which is that it it makes no sense whatsoever to not to refuse the vaccine because of this tiny increased risk of, of blood clotting in the brain. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's important, again, to understand how tiny they are. I think you were looking at the risk from the oral contraceptive pill, weren't you? That's right. Yeah, I saw one article which was explaining that, um, you know, people understandably are quite afraid of the idea that a medicine they take, in this case a vaccine, might um, give them a blood clot, uh, particularly very potentially fatal blood clot in the brain. But what is fascinating is that um, this 
the if you compare that to the increased risk of blood clots from other very common med- medication we don't think twice about them and so for example you know the, the contraceptive pill something taken on a daily basis by probably tens of millions of people in the uk um uh, about one in a thousand people uh, experience blood clotting related to taking the pill each year uh, and to put, use the same scale we were using before that's a, a thousand in a million uh, so to compare four or five uh, per million people who have the AstraZeneca or the Pfizer vaccine might experience one of these devastating blood clot events as opposed to a thousand in a million people uh, who are taking the contraceptive pill a pill which is not controversial, which nobody thinks twice about. Um, and it just made me really reflect on on the challenge us human beings have in understanding and communicating risk. It's just very difficult to clearly explain to people uh, what the risk is, uh, how to balance it against other risks. Um, it's, yeah, our brains just really struggle with, with wrapping our heads around that. Yes, it's, it's interesting that, that psychologists who study this, I think have suggested that really we're only really capable of understanding two levels of risk. We, we understand things that are very common. So is there a risk it's going to rain today? You know, we understand, well, it might not rain, but it's very likely to rain. And if I really don't want to get wet, probably I should do something about it. Um, and then we understand risks that are extremely rare, like am I likely to get struck by lightning today? Uh, and we understand, well, it's possible, but it's so unlikely that it doesn't really change the way I live my life. Um, what we find very difficult psychologically to assess is this kind of intermediate risks that fall somewhere between that. And to try and assess, you know, is, is one in a thousand, is that is that something I need to worry about? And is that more than you know 39 in a million is that is that is that not something to worry about and so on so um that means that there's a huge responsibility aren't there on on public communicators including journalists like you tim as to how we talk about these risks absolutely and i think that's why this was issue was a bit fraught wasn't it earlier in the year when the when the regulators and the scientists first started flagging up that there there was a correlation between increased of uh, blood clotting events and after people taking the vaccine, because I think the the kind of public health bodies and the journalists both knew that uh, it's very easy to destroy confidence in the vaccine overnight. That has taken months to build up, and um, and so that's why I think there was a lot of fear about what would the media do with this information. You know, would it whip it up into a feeding frenzy and turn people off the AstraZeneca vaccine which is sadly what's happened in some European countries uh, where you know I've read reports of in France and places like that where people are just refusing to come to their vaccine appointments once they discover they're going to be given the AstraZeneca vaccine rather rather than the Pfizer one ironically as you point out the blood clotting risks are largely the same but the Pfizer one just hasn't had the same uh, negative reporting Um, and then even but even if you're a kind of if you're aware of these risks and as a journalist you want to report responsibly how on earth do you communicate five in a million those are just numbers our brains can't visualize what five in a million looks like so i was really impressed actually with ironically how of all papers the sun uh, explained this um when it when when the uk announced that they were going that the kind of confirmed the news the regulator confirmed that this there was a 
there was a, um, a correlation. They had a very famous front page that some people might have seen it, which had a picture of a syringe on it. And in, on the syringe in huge red letters is the number 0.000095%. And underneath the headline, tiny chance of a killer clot after AZ vaccine. Which is, yeah. I think, was a, is, is, is a classic kind of tabloidy red top style. But actually, they've done a really good job because they've reported, you know, the news. You can't, you don't want to hide the news, pretend that the vaccines don't have this increased risk. But people understand percentages quite intuitively. You know, we talk about things that are 1% or an interest rate that might be 2%. And when you see that it's 0.000095%, it really drives home that this is like astronomically vanishingly rare. So I thought that was a surprising but quite encouragingly effective piece of kind of public communication. Yeah, it's remarkable, actually, how um, it seems that the UK journalists on this particular issue have been very, very careful and responsible because I have to say that they have form. You know, if, if you go back when I was a junior doctor, there was a lot of anxiety about whooping cough uh, immunization, which had a similar kind of risks. It was a few per million of, of having a horrible neurological condition in young babies. Um, but there were banner headlines about whooping cough, dangerous, damaging vaccine, and also about the measles, mumps, rubella, MMR mm. vaccine. A lot of tabloids uh, really waded in about autism risk and shock horror. You know, are we damaging our children and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting that uh, the journalists, have, I think, have got the message that um, the way they present risk uh really makes a difference and it's fascinating to see that it actually the uk seems to have done uh, much better than many european countries in terms of vaccine hesitancy yes that's certainly true i've, I've seen statistics that you know before the blood cup issue came out i think appro approaching 80 percent of people said they were confident that the vaccines were safe and then after several weeks of sound and fury particularly coming from europe and then in the british media as well that number dipped to about 78 77 percent so really didn't really change at all which i think is personally very encouraging that the uk public was able to you know understand the facts that there is a risk but that it's very very small but also i think personally as a journalist i'm quite pleased and quite proud actually of how uh, the profession managed to communicate that news in a way which um, didn't destroy very carefully built up um, confidence in the vaccines. Um, yeah, it's also know. interesting that I think the messaging in the UK has been dominated by the medical perspective um, coming from Chris Whitty and and the others. And whereas in the u in the eu it seems that often it was regulators who who were sort of were dominating the the public agenda and who and whose interests were much more in terms of protecting uh you know you know the precautionary principle and so on yes i think this is a really interesting point because the the news is sparked by i think it was denmark or another eu country's internal medicines regulator announcing that they were suspending all AstraZeneca jabs for a period of time while they reviewed new data about blood clots. And this then kind of rippled across the continent as other countries followed suit. Um, and 
in time, they all basically resumed jabs, though sometimes they started excluding younger people and said it was over 50s only or over 40s only. But that critical two or three weeks where the jab was, the AstraZeneca jabs were completely paused, sowed the seed of doubt in a lot of people's minds, understandably, that that this wasn't a safe vaccine to take. Whereas in the UK, as far as I understand it, the regulator looked at the same data, made similar conclusions you know, that AstraZeneca should only really be given to people who are at a higher risk, therefore older people. But they didn't do that pause. They said, actually, on the balance probabilities, while we review the data, it's it's more, we're going to save more lives by continuing to get this jab in people's arms for the two or three weeks it takes us to review the data. And I think that has probably played a critical role in encouraging people to remain confident that while there is a risk, it's small. And that's just, I guess, a question of regulatory medical culture that in Europe it was if there's a hint of anything that could go wrong, put the brakes on, completely stop. And in Britain it was potentially because at that point we had a quite a more severe pandemic than they did in the, on the mainland. It was let's just carry on jabbing while we review the data and draw a conclusion simultaneously. Yep, I, I think there's something in that. We ought to just uh, move on, perhaps talk about vaccine uh, distribution across the world. Um, I heard a statistic that Britain has has paid, has contracts for over 400 million doses of the vaccine, despite a total population of 60 odd million. Um, although those haven't been delivered yet, but it does imply that Britain potentially could have a massive excess of vaccines and uh, the whole question about vaccine distribution across the world and uh, should we stop vaccinating young people and and instead um, get the vaccine doses we have as rapidly as possible to India and to other countries that desperately need it. What do you think about that? Yeah, this is a really important question. I think particularly because of the speed and success of the UK's vaccine rollout we know we're 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 at the point now where to be honest everyone who is receiving jabs today it's you know we're almost at my age range you'll be pleased to hear we're only a few years out from getting i'm only a few days out from getting my text Mm. i expect but frankly i'm at very very little risk of covid not only is the disease not spreading much in the country at the moment even if i catch it the chances are i mean admittedly there is a long covid risk but the chances are it won't be it will be fairly mild and it feels certainly feels uncomfortable to me the idea that because I had the fluke of being born in a in a wealthy country like the UK, I'm going to receive I'm going to be protected against this disease, while maybe an 80 year old grandma in India who is uh, much more likely to catch it and vastly higher risk of um, being seriously ill or dying from it might have to wait another 12 months. It feels. It just feels like it can't be right. I mean, national boundaries are fundamentally quite artificial things. We're all we're all human beings, and certainly in God's eyes, I don't think He cares which country we were born into and what side of borders we live on. And so, the idea that your chances of um, surviving in India are lower because the UK has got enough doses to vaccinate everyone three or four times over, just in case, it just feels like it can't be fair. It can't be just. 
Yeah, well, I, I think I tend to agree. I mean, I, th I, th I think it's an overstatement to say that countries or communities don't matter. I think in Christian understanding, there is a, a relevance to, to the community in which you belong. Um, but, but the national community is, is, a, is an artificial constructed unit. I agree that there is that your community, your tribe, your people matter. But the exact boundaries of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland are in frankly very modern and entirely artificial and the idea that because you live on this side of that line that a human being drew on a map several hundred years ago determines what 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 health you receive is is nonsensical i don't think the water which goes all the way around the british isles <laughs> is entirely artificial that's a slightly a bit of an overstatement there but nonetheless this is the historian speaking anyway yeah. let's uh let's let's give you the point and i i basically agree i i i just wish that the the christian voice you know it seems to me so sad that the things which christians are perseverating about is the possibility of a link with abortion a single abortion which happened 50 years ago which of course is a, a tragic and important issue but then to feel that that is the dominant issue when when we have something so so extraordinary as this i i, I just wish that the christian voice would be more heard making these points i mean the archbishop of canterbury has started some kind of initiative hasn't he i mean mm. in the church of england yes he's signed on to uh i think there was a um, with a bunch of other faith leaders and and there's a, I think it's organised by the WHO I'm not sure um, basically a declaration saying that we need to be more generous in in sharing sharing vaccines because it's, what has happened in the UK has happened elsewhere you know all the rich countries basically got ahead of the game and spent a lot of money last year stockpiling enough doses for four or five times over their population as a kind of way of spreading the risk in case some of these vaccine candidates as they were turned out not to work um clearly if those doses don't get delivered until later there's just no purpose in in then having till we have warehouses full of unused doses before then shipping them over to the places that need them i think we've got to get ahead of the game and start um, giving away doses that are yet to arrive in the uk um given how given that we're, we're now we've double vaccinated and everyone who's in the vulnerable categories already well, I agree. So why is the Christian voice, or any voice on this issue, why is it so muted? But certainly that Christians, it doesn't seem as though it just doesn't seem relevant. Um, is, is this, uh, you know, is is there some reason for that? And is, is there more that could Could I offer done? you a controversial answer? Go on then. I think modern evangelicalism has become quite individualistic. And I think people feel very concerned about their personal morality, which is why there is a lot of questions and focus on does does the uh, the entanglement with those uh, fetal cell lines derived from an abortion 50 years ago compromise the morality of the vaccine, which is not an unimportant question. But I think I fear that people people's idea of what Christianity is about has become it's about me between me and God. And the idea that actually Christianity has a lot to say about something between me and my neighbour, whether they're in India or, you know, is, is receded into the background. And I think, yeah, I fear that we've just become very inward focused when it comes to thinking about ethics. Yeah, and I, I, I'm afraid, sadly, you know, I agree. And, and you know, we, we were thinking about the centennial of John Stott um, just uh, a few weeks ago, but... Uh, I'm absolutely certain if John Stott was alive at this time, he would be making those points. He would be saying, 
you know, as just as he was about climate change and about nuclear disarmament and so on, he would be saying a global response to to um, vaccination is a, is an absolute Christian essential that we that we get behind this. But you know, it's not just the evangelicals, is it? Because there are a large number of Christians uh, in the country. You know, think of the Catholics, think of the Church of England, think of other Christian groups. They equally have not been vocal. In, That's true. in terms of, of vaccines. And I, I, I think there's a sort of failure of leadership here, a failure of vision uh, f- and to see the importance of, of, of taking a public stand uh, for generosity. And um, I've made the comparison before, but uh, you know, the Jubilee campaign was a wonderful example around the turn of the millennium when when Christians were very publicly involved and working with other people about global debt relief and um, I, I would love to see something similar happening um, about vaccines. The cynic in me I'm afraid says I mean I agree with everything you've said uh, entirely the cynic in me says the Jubilee campaign didn't require any personal sacrifice from those advocating for it the people who lost out were there was the treasury um, who was having to write off unpaid, unreturned debt. Whereas, you know, for the individual lobbyist or activist in the church who was writing letters and petitioning, or importantly, it didn't cost them any money. Uh, sadly, to, to to be generous with vaccines, if it would, would require someone like me saying, I'm going to delay my vaccination for six to 12 months so that someone more at need in India can receive it. That's quite a costly, sacrificial thing to do. And in times of national emergency, unfortunately, history tells us people tend to, you know, retreat inwards. They feel in, uncertain, unsafe, and they, they lock down the doors and they look after number one first before they dare to consider the needs of others. And I think that's what's happened here as well. Dear, oh dear, that is very cynical. And I'm sad to think that <laughs> <laughs> my own son should <laughs> be promoting such ideas. But I mean, all I can think again, you know, you think about the ancient history of the way that Christians responded to pandemic flu, which yeah. was, ex- you know, to plague, which was exactly the opposite. It was about it was. sacrificing myself. So anyway. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, I shouldn't be too cynical. There are so many stories and testimonies of, of Christians, you know, doctors who have volunteered themselves and, um, shared ventilators and you know there's there's a lot of good going on there and that Christian ideal of the kind of love for neighbour re- sacrificing your, yourself for, for the good of the other is not died out I'm not saying that but I, I just I fear that it's it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult challenging message and Christians have not been, always been particularly good at living up to that ideal but that was probably true in ancient Rome we don't hear the stories of the Christians who quietly fled to the hills during the plagues they don't go down in the annals of history do they (laughs) it's probably quite true shall we quickly touch on our final point about um coming out of lockdown for good and how that interacts with the ethics of of those who've chosen not to get vaccinated well just very briefly i have noticed just recently there was uh, uh, an outbreak in both of the north of england which was said to be due to the indian variant mutation of covid and what was 
very publicly reported was that the main, the older people who suffered as a result and were admitted to hospital were those who'd been offered the vaccine but had refused it for various reasons. And it, it, it was just a pointer to, I, I suspect that there is going to be increasingly stigmatisation of those who haven't received the vaccine um, and who either suffer severe consequences themselves or who pass on infection to other people and and it's it's just interesting to to think how as a society we're going to balance on the one hand recommending and encouraging people to receive the vaccine without a kind of really negative unpleasant and damaging stigmatization of those who haven't been vaccinated yes and i think it's particularly challenging when you think about the things we mentioned before that there are a number of christians who have chosen on moral grounds not to be vaccinated because they are, um, they have objections to the fact that it was tested on fetal cell lines derived from an abortion, um, which is, you know, a principled, it's not personally a position I, I intend to take the vaccine, but I can understand and respect that position. It's principled, it's thought through, it's, um, but it's not a position that's going to have much sympathy outside of the church. And yeah, I certainly, you certainly don't want to see a situation in where Christians who have you know, chosen on ethical reasons not to be vaccinated, not out of ignorance, but out of uh, principle, who then find themselves cut out of society or stigmatised or um, pressured by government to to get on board and do what everyone else is doing. Um, that could be a really unwelcome development. It's interesting because actually this is an issue which medics, Christian medics, have wrestled with for many years, and that is um, how people who have a conscientious objection to particular medical practices, working as a doctor, how they are treated by the profession as a whole. And we've always argued that uh, in order to have a healthy society, we need to treat people who have conscientious objections to particular activities. We need to treat them with respect and and not stigmatise them or, uh, or make their lives unnecessarily difficult. And in the same way, having that attitude towards people who have conscientious objection to the vaccine. It's interesting that, you know, that that same kind of thinking, which has previously mainly affected Christians in the health professions, that's something we're going to have to think about more widely in society as a whole. Mm. And just finally then, I think the kind of glass half full uh, take on this is that um, realistically, I think most people accept that we're going to have to lift lockdown and go back to normal before we've eradicated COVID from these shores. Um, and the purpose of the vaccination campaign is not simply to save individual lives, but is to build up enough herd immunity in the population so that we can get, basically get COVID down to kind of tolerable levels, which is a horrible thing to say, but fundamentally we tolerate as a society tens of thousands of people dying of flu each year. And nobody puts on a mask, nobody takes a jab, and nobody shuts down businesses or stays at home. And I think as long as we can get to the kind of 80, 85% rate of vaccination, which is the rate that we're kind of on target to reach if the younger generations continue to accept the vaccine, hopefully that small minority who refuse, whether it's out of concerns or kind of principled reasons, they won't be large enough to prevent the overall society from kind of clamping down on COVID enough that we can return to normal life. And whether you've been vaccinated or not becomes immaterial because the whole society has developed enough herd immunity. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the only thing I'd add is that it may well be that we have to have annual or even more frequent re-immunisation or booster doses in order to maintain immunity against new variants. But but in principle, I think you're right that 
uh, if a significant levels of say 70 to 80 percent of the population are effectively protected then we're unlike it we're not going to have the kind of devastating um, effects that we've seen so far in in, in mass deaths and, and overwhelming of the health service Great. All right. Well, let's call it, call it a day there. It's been a long episode. Thanks for your time, John. Um, good to speak to you as always. Uh, and I'll uh, look forward to the next one. Thanks a lot. That's all we have time for this week on Matters of Life and Death. But before you go, could you do us a big favour? We're currently running a listener survey to better understand what you like about the podcast and what we could do better. We have a very short web form, which will only take you three minutes to complete, but it will really help us make matters of life and death a more useful and a more interesting listen. The link to the form is in the podcast notes, or you can also find it on John's website. As always, there's a lot more to read, listen to, and watch at his website. It's johnwyatt.com, which is spelled J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. You can follow me on Twitter, I'm at T.S. Wyatt, or to read some of my journalism, go to tswyatt.com. And as always, you can get in touch with both of us about the podcast by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.